Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm so very happy to see all of you out there. Thanks for coming on this healthy spiritual journey. So I want to start this evening by thanking our partners and friends at the Texas Women's Foundation. We have new president and CEO Mickey Woodard here. We also have Dina Jackson, who has been with the organization for a long time. Thank you very much for partnering with us, for supporting us supporting this program and, and uh, we look forward to a deepening relationship. I can't wait to work with you, Mickey. Thank you very much for being here, both of you. Additional support this evening is provided by the Patricia M. Patterson Lecture Endowment. She actually had an urgent trip to New York last minute and so she is not able to be with us this evening. We miss her, but in any case, you can see this is part of her endowed lecture series as well. And I also would like to thank the Greater Dallas Hispanic Chamber of Commerce for their promotional support and we are so thrilled to partner with all of these organizations. I'd also like to recognize several distinguished guests with us this evening, Mayor Pro Tem Chad West, Councilmember Adam Balzadua, Councilmember Paul Ridley, and former State Representative he Helen Giddings. We also have some students and educators with us from uh, this evening, joining from Paul Quinn College and Brighter Horizons Academy. Thank you very much for being here. We're thrilled to see you in the audience. And uh, our education department and our education uh, program is the Global Young Leaders Program. We started this uh, in the early 2000s and we're really proud of our educational work. We work with over 70 high schools every academic uh, year, over 7,000 high school students, over 1,000 teachers. We work on global competency. We have a global certificate program. So we are always happy when we have students in the audience and we want to work with more students and more schools, more teachers. So if you are one of these people, come to us. We want to work with you. Okay, so, and I must say, I have to put in a plug, if you're not a member of the World Affairs Council yet, Michelle, I think you're joining. Yep, got it in your hand. I love it, thank you. If you're not a member of us yet, please join us. We are a community of informed and engaged citizenry. We wanna speak with you, we want to engage with you. And uh, so sign up, please join us. I will now welcome the new president and CEO of the Texas Women's Foundation. We are meeting soon. I can't wait for that. I can't wait to get to know you better. And uh, she will introduce our fabulous speaker, uh, Ms. Shalanda Speaker uh, Spencer. That we, <laughs> she's a speaker and she's a Spencer. <laughs> Who knew? Uh, anyway. Got to talk with her a little bit on, on the way here and got to see her in, in DC, which I'll say when I get back on stage. But Mickey, thank you. I did that without falling. <laughs> Step one. Thank you, Liz. I really do appreciate the opportunity to be here. What an incredible honor to introduce you this evening. So thank you for that. I am four weeks into a new role as the president and CEO of the Texas Women's Foundation. So thank you so much for partnering with us and allowing us to help bring this incredible event to fruition. We appreciate that. 
Shalanda, I noticed you're, you graduated from Jackson State. I'm a Hampton grad, Hampton University, and I am fourth generation Hampton. So we will have to compare our HBCU experiences at some point in this journey, okay? So, on to you. Our guest this evening, and I've got to read because there are so many accolades that I don't wanna mess up. So our guest this evening is a professional powerhouse who has spent her career affecting legislation on women's rights, foreign affairs, immigration, healthcare, and education, notably on issues pertaining to people of color. Ms. Shalanda Spencer serves as the executive director of the Women, Director of Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security, a global organization that advances the position of women in color in international relations and national security. Ms. Spencer's impact has been felt in some of the nation's most important spaces, from serving as a legislative assistant in the U.S. House of Representatives to working on presidential campaigns. Prior to joining WCAPS, which is Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security, Ms. Spencer was the Director of Public Policy and Government Affairs at Trying Together in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and advocated for high quality early education for children and families. Ms. Spencer is a proud Mississippi native and graduate of Jackson State University, where she earned a bachelor's degree in criminal justice and a master's degree in public policy and administration. Aligned with her own life's mission, WCAPS places an emphasis on mentorship and allows women of color who are most affected by major global issues to have strong voices in international policy discussions. Ms. Spencer is a proven and decorated expert in women's rights advocacy, women's rights advocacy, serving in various advising roles for multiple organizations that elevate the causes of women. Her focus is on illuminating issues that affect people in the margins with a fortitude woven in the very fabric of who she is. So, we will now hear from her. Before she is joined on stage for questions by World Affairs Council President Liz Brelsford. Shalanda, thank you for being with us this evening. That was such a marvelous introduction. I don't know if I should speak behind the introduction or what. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. Thank you all so much for being here. I am very humbled and grateful to have this opportunity to be speaking before you today. Also, um, Dallas, Texas, thank you for welcoming this Mississippi native. Um, we're always, you know, the South is always um, like home no matter where you go. So I, I always feel like home no matter where. I plant my feet. So for me, like she said, my name is Shalana Spencer. I currently serve as the new executive director of WCAPS. I will be approaching my role a year in May, so I'm very excited. And this is truly um, an honor for me because it's, guess what, it's Black History Month. And I often like to 
when I when I start my speeches, I often like to kind of give a resemblance of what I'm talking about, and that's really diving into diversity, equity, inclusion, and foreign affairs. Um, before I came into the field, I did a lot of social justice and advocacy work, and when I realized that these issues are not just happening here at home, but they're happening globally. And I'm very excited to be able to share those perspectives with you as that's what this series is about, perspectives, right? And when I think about foreign affairs, international relations, I remember sitting in class, because I'm currently a student at Syracuse, and I remember telling my teacher, I said, when you think of foreign affairs and international relations, what do you think was the first trade that America made? And the class got quiet. And I was like, it was the day that they decided to go enslave people that look like me and transport them over into this native land. And in 1619, we began to build this country for free. So when I think of foreign affairs and I think of foreign relations and how it all started, it started with people of color, people who look like myself and those that I see around the room. And so our goal at WCAPS is to advance the leadership and professional development of women of color in the fields of peace security and conflict transformation and we do that by ensuring that women of color have the necessary resources and tools that they need to thrive in the field we've been around four years and within those four years we've had a lot of massive and amazing wins where we've had this last this current administration we had 12 people from our organization who are members because we are a membership based and led organization to be appointed to um, the new administration and that's been a great opportunity that we've been able to kind of brag about because Under Secretary Bonnie D. Jenkins, who's actually the first black woman to um, start an organization to represent people who look like myself and those um, and people of color, but also she's the first black woman to hold the position of arms control, um, the, the Under Secretary of, hold on. Her role is very long. <laughs> but she's the first black woman to be um, the Undersecretary of Arms Control in the State Department. And that's very a uh, historical moment for us because we feel like she's have always paved the way, not just by starting this organization, but just by being where she is and always reaching back. And that's what we do at WCAPS. We like to reach back and make sure that women of color are at the table. We believe that global issues demand a variety, of, a variety of perspectives. We do that through dialogue. We have working groups. We have chapters all over the all over the nation and the country. We have one in Bogota. We have them in Ghana. We have chapters in New York and the West Coast. And so these women decided to say, hey, I believe in your mission and I believe in your vision and I want to make a difference. And when I came back into the foreign affairs space, before I came back, I was in, before I came back within this year, I was often the only black woman in the room. I was either the only woman of color in the room. And then at that time, I was either the youngest woman in the room. And so when I see myself here at WCAPS, I see my experiences and how much I've grown in this space, but more so how much more we have to go and how much more we're needed. So why is DEI important right now? I know that's been, those are the buzzwords right now in, in, every, in every room that you walk in, like diversity, equity, inclusion. Diverse, I know people probably tired of hearing about diversity, equity, inclusion. However, it's so necessary because we are entering into a world that's constantly changing. And that, cha and that world is changing every day. And like the Congressman said a few minutes ago, it's so important because, you know, everybody comes from different backgrounds, religions, ethnicities, 
cultures and, and countries, people come to America for freedom and, and liberty and, and, you know, and to end that American dream that so many people long for. So, therefore, our foreign affairs field should look like what our world looks like, that diversity, that impact that we can make because we don't have everybody at the table that look the same and act the same. One thing I always like to tell people is that those who are in leadership, if your kitchen table looks like your board or looks like your staff, then you need to start serving new people. And so it's very important that we think about, as we are, some of us, or as some of you who are students, some of you who are currently in leadership roles, some of you who are trying to you know, climb the ranks wherever you are um, stationed at as far as your job placement, think about who do you eat with? Who do you sit beside? How many times have you tried to build relationships with different people? And you never know that the person you may be, new people that you're encountering with and building new relationships with can bring different perspectives to make you think different and look at the world in a different perspective. And so the government and foreign affairs has that, that's the gift that we all have who are in this field because we get to network and meet and just share our lives with so many people from across the globe. Right now, I'm gonna give you another example of like how, why our organization exists and why is it, and why is it important. When I first took this position in August, uh, I mean in May, I remember August of, August 30th, 2021, when President Biden decided to remove the troops from Afghanistan. Um, who the first person impacted, the first people? It was women and girls. Um, for 20 years, women and girls had a sense of privilege. They had a sense of comfort. They felt, they felt secure when our troops were there. But the moment that they were, our troops left, their security left. Their security blanket no longer existed for them. Um, they experienced a lot of turmoil right now, for those of you who, who may not know. They um, no longer have a lot of access to healthcare services. Um, women and girls, the violence increased over the course of time since the regime has taken over. They are facing a lot of hunger crisis. They are afraid to go to school because the schools and villages are being attacked and bombed or they're just being traumatized. And of course, lastly but not least, they are trying to flee Afghanistan, figuring out what their next move is gonna be and how can they escape. And so when these issues happen or when any foreign affairs or foreign policy issue that the United States decides to make, whether if it's locally or whether if it's national or internationally, women of color are the first to be affected. It's been proven over the course of time and it's still being shown today. Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at Right now, in the State Department, women represent only 33%. So we have not, and one thing we've been trying to do as an organization is to 
um, identified by demographics and, and color, but in you know race and ethnicity. However, you know the good government don't like to release stats. A lot of them or data, and so it's been a big fight. But however, we do know that women as a whole only make up 33% of the United States Department. That means 70% is still led and represented by men who are majority white. Um, women only represent 12% of the Department of Defense. That means only 28% of male national security experts consider gender equality an important foreign policy goal compared to 45% of women. They also said, and this is through a Carnegie research, that female experts were also much more likely to highlight the need to understand how security issues, including conflict resolution, terrorism, and countering violent extremists affect men and women differently. And it's funny because Liz and I, when we were on our way over here, we talked about how women, we are so more empathetic and we have a lot of sympathy and we understand and we have that nurturing spirit. And so when issues like this arise, when it comes to equality, women see it from a different lens but yet and still, we are less represented in the most important spaces, which is our you know, government affairs space. We are NGO um, and here in um, my organization in DC, but I say, tell people all the time when I'm describing our nonprofit is that we're very unique because we focus on foreign relations and international affairs, and we're about elevating women into these roles. We have to be in the know of what's going on in government. And so we've met with a few people in higher leadership and we've asked these questions like, why aren't women you know, brought to the forefront? Why aren't they sitting at tables? I will say, and I think I said this earlier, the administration was good about doing one thing and that was they are the first administration to diversify what it, you know, kind of elevating women of color into fields. I will applaud, you know, President Biden and Kamala Harris for doing that because of because of them, a lot of women were able to lead in higher advisory roles um, and be considered for higher positions. However, some of the things that we did notice is that when it comes to executive senior level roles, there's still a lack of representation, and that is why we need more women of color in the rooms. Because when I think about Afghanistan, when I'm thinking about Ukraine right now, um, just the other day I listened to a podcast and a woman was talking about how she's preparing her children and her homes for war. Um, and this is a woman. A woman shouldn't have to think about you know, a war that is out of her control or how I'm gonna protect my family. You know, And that's the, and that's the space that we're in. When we think about foreign affairs and international relations, one thing I often think about is like how are we defining national security, you know? And WCAPS, we have this thing where we talk about how do we redefine it, you know? And then we have an initiative called Redefining National Security, where it's not about just nonproliferation and wars on mass destruction. You know, national security is about healthcare, where access have, you know, women of color have always, will always have, let, you know, not have as much access to healthcare. You know, when women, when COVID-19 hit, we saw where women were the first to let go and had to leave their homes. That was a national security crisis for a lot of women of color who, who actually leave their households. I come from a single parent household. I couldn't imagine my mom of five children at the time being, you know, if we were, if COVID had happened then, her having to leave her home or leaving work to come take care of us at home. And that's what a lot of women had to do because someone had to work. 
we also think of national uh, national security crisis as you know education right here in the united states women of color have the most student loans yet and still you know we're still thriving and trying to you know seek the next thing so national security is not just about you know issues that related to war there are certain things that are happening right here in our nation that are still considered national security crisis so I often be I'm often asked like you know Shalonda how do we diversify this field how do we what do we do what do we do what are, how do we push the needle forward and then I sometimes don't have always I don't feel like I have all the answers um, because like I said coming into this field I didn't really understand how important it was to advocate um, for like I knew what it was like to advocate for women's issues in the U.S. because it was so simple but our working groups we have 17 of them. And when I first started my job, I would hear these women's stories. I would hear some of them talk about how their parents were immigrants. Some of them were illegal and some of them were legal immigrants. Um, the hardships that they had to experience being here in America. And I often just think about, you know, Shalinda, that could have been you. Or I think about the social economic disadvantage that I came from as well, being a first generation black college student, attending an HBCU and not graduating once, or, but I graduated twice. And seeing the fact that it took a long way and it took a long path because, you know, economic is a national security issue. <laughs> and we don't think about how economic truly rules our nation. And so I just wanted to say that to diversify this field and to make sure women of color are elevated, we have to do a few things. And that is one, these NGOs or organizations that we are a part of, that we lead, we have to hold everybody accountable leadership included. I even let my staff know, hey, if you don't feel like I'm doing something right, let me know. I even sometimes when I'm interviewing or when I'm, I'm hiring, I try to make sure my, I look at my staff and I'm like, okay, what am I missing? Some people don't look at what they're missing out of a staff. I don't want everybody to look like me. I don't want everyone to have the same experience and background that I had, because guess what, we're gonna often think the same. The, um, but I greatly appreciate the accountability that I hold myself to, but also holding, you know, asking myself to hold me accountable. Elevate and promote people of color and leadership. In this NGO space, when I first started, when I, it was very interesting, because 70% of nonprofit employees are women, yet they do not rise to leadership the same portion as men do. When I first started my role, I met, I was meeting with other NGOs in this space in foreign affairs. I was the only black woman, ED, um, and have been up until um, Peace Direct, which is another NGO, just hired a board member of ours. So she's the second black woman, ED, in like in the U.S. There's two black women, EDs, or and she's also considered women of color. And then there's another guy who was just Travis. He was just appointed to a job. So there's a black man, and so right now their field is still not diverse. And we are realize, and I'm realizing like, oh my gosh, I now I got to see people look like me. But how do we get more organizations to put people in senior leadership? And sometimes it don't even have to be executive director. It can be director roles where there's a gap that is still missing. And so that's another thing: making sure we're elevating people and promoting them. Don't just hire them to put them on your DEI checkbox and status. I often say that all the time because. I've been in a position where I was the black girl that you needed for your, your, your organization, 
but I wasn't the black girl that you really thought you knew that you that you wanted when it came out to speaking on injustice and issues within the organization. And so I know what that feels like and I have that experience. And so I always tell people, be sure you're ready to hire people of color and leadership and not just hire them. Third, diversify by recruiting differently. Just like I said, I come from HBCU. I just sat in a room the other day with a lot of high level execs from Peoria, Illinois. And they asked me, how do I get more people on my team and staff? And I said, where are you recruiting? Where are you, where are you taking your, where are you sending your recruitment staff? Are you going to your typical predominantly white-led institutions? Because if you are, you're still missing out on a whole lot of talent. And I remember looking at all of them because it was a majority white room and I said, you know, you're not only missing out on talent, but you're missing out on intelligent and smart talent because the same organizations and stuff that were created and then the same rooms that you're not allowing people to come in. I come from an HBCU, so you are sitting next to an HBCU graduate, so you can't say we're not qualified and we're not equipped. If anything, they equipped us and we become qualified afterwards. <laughs> And I always say it's very important that we truly go into different diversities, go into these marginalized communities. These students of color don't know these fields even exist because they haven't been exposed, not because they don't want to go into them. A funder told me, hey, Shalonda, we are struggling. The people, kids don't want to go into government. It's not that they don't want to. You're not, you don't look like them, so if they don't see somebody who looks like them in the room, how would they buy into it? How would they know that this is possible? I'm a prime example. I didn't know becoming an ambassador of a country was possible for, you know, for, for a person that looked like me. I didn't even know those roles existed. But the moment I started expanding myself and, and I studied abroad in undergrad, I did things a little bit differently because I knew that I wanted different. But I also had leaders who were in my, in my life to try to show me something different. So I think that we have to go inside universities that are um, people of color are majority of them and recruit. Um, my biggest one is don't not offer non-pay internships and fellowships. <laughs> Students of color are more than likely to be offered a non-paid intern and fellowship compared to someone of a Caucasian descent. It's been statistically proven. Um, I'm a person who took her first foreign affairs role on an unpaid internship in Washington, D.C. back in 2017 in the most expensive place <laughs> in the country. But I had someone who, I had family, a little family support who understood that I had a bigger dream. So I often tell organizations, please follow, if you don't do nothing but give them a stipend, do not have them in, a, in another state like literally struggling and trying to figure out life because it's very unfortunate and it's unfair. And I talk, and I can always say, it's 2022. We can find money somewhere. You can partner with the university, and those are some things that we have to think about. Think outside the box. We may not have the fun, but the university may say, hey, let's, I can meet you halfway if you, do, if you meet us halfway. So there's always room, but what we don't want to, we don't want to leave the young people out, but we have to think about their well-beings when they're in these fields. Diversify your board of directors. That goes back to the kitchen table I was talking about. <laughs> if your kitchen table look the same, your board is gonna look the same way. And so we have to be intentional about who we're having as our board of directors and making sure that they, cause they perspectives matter too, just as well as your staff. 
People ask, I remember when um, Ambassador Jenkins, before she left, they say, where do you get all these women of color from that's on your board? And Bunny will just, and Ambassador Jenkins will be like, they're out there. <laughs> we're not hard to find. I promise you we're not hard to find. LinkedIn, we, I'm telling you, you go on LinkedIn, you're going to find us every day. <laughs> but, you know, it's very important that we think about these things. Um, Reevaluate organization work culture. Black people were not ready to go back into, like COVID-19 was a blessing in disguise for people of color. Micro and macroaggressions literally gave people of color like anxiety and depression. Cause when they walked into the room or walked into their office space, they felt the, the white supremacy work culture. And we have to get out of that. And it's so, and it's so hard, but I feel like COVID-19, it revealed a lot of what America was already facing, but it would basically put it more into our face. And so we have to truly think about how do we, how do we eliminate that white supremacy work culture? And I tell people, don't just hire a DEI expert to come into your field and do some work, because until you're really ready to face the racial injustice issues into your organization, then don't waste your time and waste your staff time. Because what happens is you draw your people of color away. So try to make sure that your intentions are pure when you're saying, I want to diversify my organization or I want to make change. And hear their voices, hear what they have to say. You know, we, I, tell, I mean, I have an open door policy for my staff. If you're feeling, I even do check-ins, just a random, I need to do a post check because people are still living at home. We're still working from home and it's still depressing on a lot of us. Um, prioritize diversity your organization's strategy plan. That's another one. Everybody has a strategy plan that they do every year, every two or three years. And it's always good to go back to that drawing board and say, hey, we're doing some stuff. We, there are some things we need, we need to redo. Or maybe there are some things that we need to fix and be transparent and open with that which goes into my last one, which is be intentional and transparent. As a person in leadership, be intentional about what you do and be transparent with who you are. And your staff will love you, I promise you. I try not, <laughs> I try to be like, okay, I, I, sometimes I question, am I too transparent? But I'm like, no, because they deserve to be in the know. They deserve to understand what's going on. Because at the end of the day, you're spending eight hours with this person, five days a week, well, right now we're doing it through Zoom. <laughs> but it's all, and, and a close friend actually once told me, she said, Shalana, always make sure you're intentional. So when I'm in spaces, even in rooms like this, I'm intentional about the spaces that I'm in because like I told Daniel, I'm just a speaker and I'm here to serve you, whatever, whatever it is that was put on my heart to say, because as public servants, because Nonprofits are public service jobs too. I tell people don't think just because we're not running for office, we're not in leadership to where we're having to serve people because we're filling a void that government can't fill. And that they come to us as experts to make sure we're giving them the proper data, the research that we find. Like we, and I, and I learned that when I was a legislative aide, I met with more nonprofits than business owners because they are the ones who are doing the work on the ground. So everybody in this room is important. I don't know what your job is or what you do, but if you're not in a federal or state government, your work is just as important because we and they rely on you. So my charge to everybody today is for you students, if you've never thought about a career in foreign affairs, think about it, research. 
and truly think about things from a global perspective now because we're living in a global world. And it's always good to have more young people at the table. Um, and for your, those of you who are in leadership, my charge is to make sure you take diversity, equity, inclusion very serious. You know, as women of color, we don't just want to exist in a room, but we want to have a position to where we are heard in that room. And oftentimes our voices have been shut out. And I think that it's time for a change, and that change starts with us, and it starts now. Thank you so much.